You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. My name is Sophie. I'm I'm in fifth grade, and I attend Hope Kids. Please stand for today's reading. The passage today is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and verse 6 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and evermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be the Lord. Thank you, Miss Sophie. You did wonderful. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Turn to someone around you and wish them a Merry Christmas. It is the Christmas season, which means we are in our Advent series for the next couple of weeks. We're walking through this old and familiar hymn, O Holy Night, while we also use some scripture to expositorily walk through the themes and ideas conveyed in this song. This week, we are in verse 1, covering the whole verse 1 of O Holy Night. And it's me, not Mark. Mark is actually out of town this week. You can be praying for him. It's his son's birthday, and he texted me this morning saying, we are reined in a cabin with a one year old, a three year old, a five year old, and a preteen. So whichever age group you think he's terrified most of, we just need to be praying for him and that it, the sun would maybe start shining. Uh, but today I, I want us just to walk through this verse by verse, looking at this hymn. And so to get started, I just want to read this as a way for us to center ourselves on the words that are being said here today. I'm not going to sing it. I know maybe that disappoints some of you. I could have given you my best Josh Turner or Willie Nelson impression, but that's not happening today. I'm just reading it. So let's read verse one of O Holy Night together as we begin. He says, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. O night, O holy night, O night divine. In this wonderful area of the South, we have something called Southern hospitality. It is this disorder, that's what I'm going to call it, it is this disorder where we cannot help but talk to the person who's walking opposite the street from us or that we're standing in line next to at the grocery store or in any instance, it is almost like this tick where we just have to show recognition to someone that we see them. It is this natural outward friendliness that we have. Everyone does it in their own way, shape, or form 
unless you are a northerner or a Californian who are still getting adjusted to this culture shock. And there are a lot of you moving to this area. Uh, but other than that, everyone here at face value is pretty friendly. Mine is that classic head nod down with a smile. It's, you know, it's everyone, gets that. It's just that. It's me saying, I, I see you, I know you, I love you. That's what I do when I, that's what I mean when I do that. But for the most part, one of the biggest ways that we make Southern hospitality on display is by asking a very simple question that I would bet every single one of you have either been asked or asked this to someone this week. And that is, how are you? This is the Southern hello. We don't even respond to that half the time. It's usually just a, how are you? How are you? It's the way that Southerners say hello to each other. But when somebody does answer it, the answers that I've been getting a lot the last couple of years, I'd say there's two top answers I've been getting. First is somebody says, how are you doing? They'll say, man, I'm good, but I am busy. Or the second, man, I'm doing really well, but I am tired. I find myself even answering this way, busy and tired. Sometimes it's because I am busy and I have a lot of work and I am tired and Tatum's not been sleeping through the night. But more often than not, this just naturally comes out to me. This feels normal for me to say that I am busy and tired. It has become normal in our society to be a people who are busy and tired. So that if someone isn't busy or tired, and they don't respond with busy or tired. We view them negatively like they're a lazy bum or that man, something is just deeply wrong with them for not to be busy or tired especially around this time of year of Christmas. I know it energizes us at times, but this season makes us really busy and at least, at the very least afterwards, makes us exhausted. We, we've got to create our chores and do our annual dusting. I do mine about once a year, dusting the house so that guests don't complain when they come over for Christmas or anything like that. Uh, we've got to shop for gifts. I feel like I'm shopping for 30 nephews and nieces because my sisters just keep popping them out. Uh, we have to make travel arrangements galore. We have to go visit parents and in-laws and grandparents and grandparent-in-laws. Uh, and, 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 and then we still have to hang out with ourselves uh, in that midst of that as well. Uh, and then we want to enjoy the season too. It's full of all of these things that we feel like we have to get done, but simultaneously, we want to actually enjoy the season. We want to fit in all the traditions like drinking eggnog by a fire. We want to make mud angels. That's the southern version of, uh, of snow angels. We want, to, we want to watch every single uh, holiday movie that we can possibly watch, like Miracle on 34th Street or that one with the Bruce guy and the guns. I'm blanking. Someone. was Die Hard. Thank you, Daniel. I know you would come through for me, baby. Die Hard, or in Cassie's in my case, we try to watch every single Christmas episode of The Office, that being the best one, Benny Hanna, Christmas, amen, and hallelujah. We want to do all these things, and we try to fit everything in, and it makes us busy and exhausted. And if we're being honest with ourselves, this kind of noise and commotion, this busyness and exhausted state is not just reserved for the Christmas holiday season, but this has become our natural state of being, so that to be human is to be busy and tired. And we can blame a lot of things. We can maybe say that it's the result of a country who prides itself on work or has a system that's set up to be that if you work hard enough, you can actually make a name for yourself and make some money. And while all these might be true, there is something at the root of our busyness and our exhaustion, our endless work, our constant searching, our never-ending uh, 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 dissatisfaction. And, and there's something at the root of that, and it's simply that it is a symptom of sin. This hymn says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. 
God created this world for us to work, to cultivate it, to steward it, to labor in it. And yet that work was not something that left us exhausted. And it's not something that would have made us say, oh, I'm just busy and overcome with busyness and I just can't find any rest. It wasn't until Adam and Eve sinned and, and brought sin into the world by disobeying God that the good way that God had created all things started to become infected with this plague of sin. One thing that it did, Paul describes perfectly in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. The first symptom is that we have fallen short. We are out of right standing with God. We can no longer do the right thing. It's not just that we uh, cannot do that or that we don't want to do it. It's that we cannot do the thing that needs to be done in order to become who God has created us to be. But the hymn says that we're also in error pining. Pining, it's not a word that you hear a whole lot, mainly because we talk a little bit more normally nowadays, and we're not using this kind of speech in our day-to-day language, but it essentially means a yearning or a wanting. And he says that it's an error pining. So it is a wrong wanting. The desires of our heart have become disordered so that now we are looking in all of the wrong areas for satisfaction, rest, and fulfillment. It's why Jesus called those who are not saved. He didn't call them sinners most commonly. He called them the blind, the deaf, and the lost because he was speaking to the infection of sin in this world that makes us unable to do what needs to be done and unable to want the thing that can actually save us and bring us the rest that our souls so desperately need. And so our predicament is this, we cannot do the right thing and we do not want the right thing. And in Isaiah chapter eight and nine that we're gonna be sitting in a little bit this morning as we walk through this hymn, we find Isaiah prophesying to a desperate and lost people who are continually doing the wrong thing over and over and over again. Just think of the book of Judges that we've been in over the last couple of months. They are in this cycle of sin that they cannot get out of. And yet they're also desperate. They want a solution. They're crying out. And so what Isaiah does is he writes to them or he prophesies over them And he explains that we are where we are at in this sin and with an unquenchable thirst and a desperate hunger. In chapter 8, verse 20, he says, we are here because if they will not speak according to this word, this testimony, this word of God, it is because they have no dawn. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. They turn their faces upward and they'll look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. One theologian comments on these verses explaining it, saying that what Isaiah is saying is that there is no hope outside of what the Lord has spoken. Every utterance, however spirit authorized, which fails to accord with his word is darkness without light. Bottom line is that there is nothing outside of God that can save us or that can fulfill us or that can can satisfy the yearning that each of us have inside of our souls. And because of sin, because we can't do the right thing and because our desires are disordered, this built-in feature that God has given us of desire has fallen out of line. It's become deformed and defect. Desire is a very godly thing. 
A lot of Christians will say, man, desire is bad. You got to cut down a desire. Passion is not a good thing. But desire is a beautiful, godly thing. He ingrained it in our souls so that out of our yearning, out of our longing, out of our wanting, we would be ultimately led to the one who can satisfy that yearning. But in our sin, that wiring has started to go askew in us so that we are looking everywhere but God in order to satisfy our souls. All of us, I believe, intrinsically want the same things, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. I believe that all of us have this pining, this yearning. We, we all want to be rested. None of us want to be busy and exhausted as our constant state. We, we want to live a fulfilling life. No one, want to, no one wants to get to the end of their life and their life meant nothing and their life was pointless. We are all looking for a sustaining vision for our life that gives us purpose in the here or now. We all want happiness. We all want to experience beauty and good things. We all want these things. But rather than going to God and placing our trust and giving weight to him and his words, we try to satisfy them, Isaiah says, by looking to the stars or or looking to the earth. We fill our life with excess. We we buy the next new thing. We, We get married and have kids hoping that that will give us enough purpose in our life to make it through the next day. We fill our lives with beautiful things and we focus our whole life around wonderful and beautiful things and we make them the point hoping that those things will be the things that fulfill us. But all that these things will do, all that looking to stars and looking to the earth will ever only do is leave us more unsatisfied and unfulfilled, constantly wanting more. It's this error pining as a symptom of sin. Sin and error causes us to try and satisfy our desires through creation rather than the creator. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, talks about this and explains how we so often place our Uh, We place our value and we put our trust and give weight to beautiful things of this world rather than the one who created them. He says, the books or the music fill in the blank in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited yet. C.S. Lewis is saying the same thing that Colossians 2.17 says. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. But in our humanity and in our sinfulness and in our error, we look to these things and we make them the point. But all that they will ever do is break our hearts. We continually go to the wrong places for the rest and fulfillment and salvation that can only be found in God that each of us want and need. Isaiah says, those who speak this word of the world have no dawn. 
As long as we pursue these things and look to these things, we'll be thrust into deeper and thicker darkness. As long as it's up to us or as long as it's up to the world to satisfy us or save us, there will be no hope because none of us and no thing in this world has the power to do what needs to be done. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopalian priest out of New York, said these wise words saying that human potential has been explored to the nth power and it's a dead end. If we've learned anything in the book of Judges so far, we should realize that what we learn is that we have no power to save ourselves from our enemies. We have no power to save ourselves from our sin. We have no power to pull ourselves out of the darkness. But when human efforts fail, when everything that we do just thrusts us into deeper and thicker darkness, when everything that we participate in and seek out and give weight to and place our trust in just leaves us more broken, more hungry, and more desperately unsatisfied, when we are hopeless and everything is looking hopeless. The French version, remember this is a French poet of O Holy Night, the French version of this song actually starts when Christ was born in the midnight hour. In the midnight hour, poetically, that's at the last possible minute. When all of the longing of the world, when all of the yearning, when all of our wanting had reached its moment of hopelessness and every aspect of the world was about to give up in the midnight hour, this is when divine intervention steps in. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared. Until our souls saw the substance of the world and not just the shadows of something beautiful and good, but we finally saw who all of these shadows should be attributed to. And Isaiah says, let me, in Isaiah 8, read the whole chapter when you get home today. He's just laying out the predicament of the world But then he says, at the midnight hour, let me tell you about the promise of this appearance. Let's read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 this morning, altogether, or not altogether, don't read it with me. I mean, you can in your head, but besides the point. Isaiah 9, 1, he says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle to mold and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9 is one of 8,810 promises in Scripture. 
I didn't know that until this week when I looked it up, but there are 8,810 promises in scripture. But the unique thing about Isaiah 9 is that every single one of the promises in scripture is ultimately pointing us to and ultimately promising us what is happening here in Isaiah 9. And that is that our God will come into this world and do what no person, no generation, no amount of human willpower has ever been able to do. And that is save us from our sin and satisfy the longing of our soul. This is what God is coming to do till he appears and the soul felt its worth. When he finally comes, when we see who this child really is, when we actually understand who Christ is in each of our own individual lives, when God becomes real to us and we actually see that he is all that he said he was, our souls take a sigh of relief because we realize this is what we've been searching for. This is what we've needed This is what I've been missing, this Christ, this Jesus, his coming into the world, his appearance, and this promise is the light flipping on in the darkness so that our souls can actually see the substance and the the sustaining person of this cosmos and not just the shadows that point to him. We have finally seen the substance in Christ. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 is God's great promise to a broken and wanting world to make all things right. It is a promise to give us a king that we so desperately need in order to lead us and command us. This is the promise of, of someone who will be our peace, giving rest to our weary hearts. This is someone who's going to be our perfect counselor, guiding and directing us in righteousness, towards righteousness, this is the child who's coming to, 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 that has all of the power to save and redeem anything and anyone. This is the promise that all 8,810 promises are pointing towards. This God making himself flesh for our sake. This is a beautiful and a massive promise in scripture. And yet this promise and every other promise in scripture does not matter if we do not trust the one who is promising it. A promise doesn't matter anything if we don't trust the person who is promising us those things. We've all been in that situation or maybe we've seen the situation or we know of the situation where there's a kid standing at the edge of the diving board and there's an adult in the water holding up their hands saying, come on, jump, I got you. I'm not gonna let you drown. I'm swimming right now. You can see I can swim. I won't even let you touch the water. I'm just gonna bring you right over to the edge, just jump. And that kid in a moment of doubt doesn't jump, but he says, you promise? I was in this exact situation a couple years ago with my nephew, Andrew, at my sister's pool, and I'm in the water. I'm saying all these same things. Andrew, come on, jump, dude. You can swim. That's the first thing. You can swim. Second, I'm swimming. I'm not going to let you touch the water if you don't want to. We can go over to the edge. I promise I'm not going to let you drown. And yet he never jumped until one of his parents got in the water. They go through the same exact spiel, same promises, and then he jumps. Why? Because the person in the water usually determines whether or not that kid is going to jump. You and I aren't going to give weight to the words that God commands or the promise or or trust the promises that God speaks to us if we do not trust him. You and I have a doubt problem in our own lives that keeps us from living a life that believes and lives differently based on what God has said. It's the same problem that we have had, every generation has had since Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same three doubts that humankind has had 
for generation after generation. We doubt God's power. We doubt God's wisdom. And we doubt God's love. In some aspect, what keeps us from doing what God has asked us to to do, what keeps us from trusting what God has promised, is that we are doubting God's wisdom, God's power, and God's love for us. So that when God promises something or when he commands us to do something, rather than going, this is the good and true, holy and righteous, unconditionally loving, not withholding God of the universe who knows what's best for me, who wants what's best for me, and who has the power to do what's best for me, Instead of saying that, we say, I don't think it's loving for you to ask me to give this up. Or I don't think it's loving for you to make me do this. I think you're trying to manipulate me. Or we say, this does not make any sense, God. I think I can make a better plan than this. Or we go, I'm not going to bring this to you because I don't think you have the power to do. Or I'm facing something so massive. I just don't think you understand how big this is. I don't think you have the power to do this based on what I know to be possible. And this is our big mistake when it comes to doubt. What you and I so often do is that we project onto God our own imperfections and our own insecurities. We take this God of the universe and we bring him too low as to say, since when I love, sometimes I manipulate. Or when I love, sometimes I don't have the best intentions. Or when I love someone, sometimes, sometimes I'm trying to get something in return. God has to be the same. Or or since I don't have complete understanding of everything and because I can't wrap my head around this, well, then God also must be in the same predicament. Or since I don't even have the power to breathe, in fact, when I start thinking about to breathe, I stop breathing. So I don't even have the power to do any of that. So surely God's power is limited. We project our own insecurities and imperfections onto God. And because of that, we stop trusting God because we have made God in our own image. We have made God just another average person who has the potential to let us down when friends, God is holy which means he cannot do anything that is evil. God is righteous and pure and blameless. He is perfect in every way. He is all powerful. He, has, he is withholding the whole world by just his words, speaking it continually into existence. This God is not even on the same, literally not even on the same plane of existence as us. And yet we doubt these things. The promises of God in Jesus, are not within our human possibility. They are a display of God's impossibility. God coming in this way, this promise appearance of God through a child and a virgin mother, Mary, this is not human possibility that our logic can wrap our minds around. This is the impossibility of God in all of his mystery, stepping into this world so that we could get a glimpse of the substance of God the world. If you're here this morning and you find yourself at the edge of that diving board unable to jump, if you find yourself not being able to live differently based on the promises of God, based on the commands of God, can I just say that there is a massive, massive difference between the wishes that we make when we blow out candles or the horoscopes that tell us who we are or what we have the potential to be or the plans that we create to bring about success and favor and fulfillment into our life and the promises of God. 
We don't have to look to the stars. We don't have to look to mother nature. We don't have to go to things with half hopes, hoping that this will finally be the thing that brings me rest or gives, makes me happy or fulfills me. It's not about how hard we can work. It's not about what we can do. All that this is and all that the promises of God are and all that they require of us is for us to place our trust in them. It's why God has given us a book full of promises that we can fact check so that we can have a confidence that when God promises something, it comes true. There is never a time, this is factual, that God has promised something that has not come true. So when he makes a promise like he does in Revelation 21, that he is making all things, all things new, we can trust that he's doing that. When he makes a promise like my grace is sufficient for you, you don't have to work, just put your trust in me, we can trust that. When he makes a claim like I am working out a plan for my glory and for the good of those who love me, we can trust that. When he makes a promise or a claim like the work is finished, we can trust that. He is doing these things and he's presenting these things and it's important for us to live according to this word so that we have a dawn so that we would see that in him and through him is the only thing that can save me from my sin and bring satisfaction to my soul. I think a lot of us get the whole saving us from our sin part. Jesus, save me from my sins. And then after that salvific moment in our life, we go right back to all the things of the world looking for satisfaction. It's not just that he saves us from our sin. It's that he satisfies our soul as long as we are looking to him for our satisfaction and not him and doom scrolling, not him and a certain amount of money, not him and a certain kind of life, not him and a certain kind of boy or girl, not him or a certain kind of child, not him and a certain kind of future. It's simply him. He is our joy. He is our satisfaction. He is our salvation. This promise, this baby Jesus, I love how familiar we are with it. I love that we know all the songs and know all the stories because we've sung them every single year. But more often than not, we take that story then and we turn it into this cute little Talladega Nights story of Jesus when this was the greatest promise of God being kept. This was the moment when 300 prophecies of the Old Testament were being fulfilled. This is the moment when 456 different verses talking about the Messiah were coming to fruition. This was Isaiah 9, the birth of Jesus, is the answered prayer of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who had been crying out, pining, yearning, praying for this God to come and step into their life from Abraham, Moses, Gideon, David, Solomon, the prophets like Isaiah. All of these generations had been crying out for this one moment. It was the moment when all of heaven and earth had been groaning for since Genesis 3. This was the moment when all of hell, hell shuddered at the sound of those piercing babies' cries. This was the moment when the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace stepped into this world, becoming what he was not so that we could become what we had no power to be. It's a moment in history when a weary world burdened by sin and error and constant unsatisfied wanting exhaled, breathed a sigh of relief and rejoiced. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. 
Luke 2, 10 through 11 tells us of an angel trying to convey this to a group of shepherds, keeping watch over their flock at night. He tries to tell them just how good of news this is. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The promised appearance of Christ makes a weary world rejoice. It brings joy both in a person and it brings joy to each of us who put our trust and give weight to that person. Joy, uh, maybe we have a lot of definitions for it. Dan Allender, I love his definition of joy in his book, Sabbath, as he explains it to be a natural response when a sweet touch of madness comes because we sense God closer to us than our own heartbeats. And it is a state of living that we have because of his fulfilled and future promises to us. It's both a feeling of ecstasy and happiness when we feel God, when we sense God closer than our own heartbeats. But it's also a state of living, a state of being that we now have through the risen Savior, Jesus. And I think joy is such a difficult concept for us to understand, not necessarily biblically understand. We can hear definitions like this and it makes sense to us at all. But when it comes to actually living this out is when it starts to feel very uh, unrealistic in our own lives. Because while there are absolutely times when I know that maybe most of us or hopefully a lot of us in this room can tell of a moment we felt God closer than our own heartbeat, the more common experience for us is not this sweetness and comfort 24-7. For a lot of us, it is a struggle to feel or to be in a state of joy because the kids are screaming, we aren't sleeping, we see inflation rising, an election is coming, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for that, war is breaking out, there are people who are hungry and hurting, marriages are failing, families are being divided, hate is rising, loved ones are sick and dying, there are mass shootings and scandals everywhere in every circle of culture, there are bills to pay, student loans just started back, my gosh, how am I supposed to have joy in the midst of the reality of this world and in the midst of my own circumstances. When life is falling apart around us, or even when we are just in our natural state of busy and tired, how are we supposed to joy? How are we supposed to rejoice? I think O Holy Night helps provide an answer for this. Every verse of O Holy Night, verse 1, 2, and 3, all end with the same three lines, starting with, fall on your knees. Fall on your knees. I was listening to an R.C. Sproul sermon this week, and by the grace of God, something that he said really applied here and I thought was really important. In his sermon, he just says, imagine if Jesus walked into this room right now. If through these doors, right where Hope Kids is, Jesus walked in all of his glorious splendor, you knew without a shadow of a doubt that that was Jesus Christ, King of all kings, Lord of all lords, and the light of all the world. We wouldn't walk up to him and dap him up and be like, yo, Jesus, it's been a long time coming, my brother. No, I hope not. You wouldn't go to him and say, all right, I got 15 things that I got to complain to you about right now because they need to be done now. And I definitely don't think we would walk up to him and go, you had the audacity to let that happen to me, Jesus. If the king of all kings walks through this door, there is one response that each of us are having. And that is we are falling on our knees and worshiping in all joy. 
it's not that the rest of our life instantly went away. It's not that all reality went away and all the hurt of the world and all the brokenness of the world went away. It's just that Jesus is standing before us. This is when we find joy, when this is our posture, when we actually understand who this Christ is, who we have in our hearts, who will never leave us nor forsake us, when we are more caught up with Christ than we are the circumstances of our world. Friends, this is good news of great joy, not because in an instant everything gets dissipated and dissolves into nothing. It's, it's simply that now we have the Savior of the world and the satisfaction of all souls standing right before us saying, here I am. Here's all of me. Dan Allender, continuing his quote from earlier, says that when we choose joy, key word, when we choose joy, This has to be a choice that we make more often than not in light of our circumstances. But when we choose joy, we are not escaping the reality of death. We are simply focusing on the promise that death will not win. It's acting before death. It's mocking death as if it has no ultimate power. Our joy is celebrating that love is stronger than death and that the madness of God, I love this, the madness of God is saner than the wisdom of man. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. What doesn't make sense to us is God's perfect plan. We find, we choose joy when we are more caught up with the Christ who is in our hearts, who is in the room with us, with the presence of God who is all around us at all times and all we have to do is be aware of it than we are our circumstances. A perfect example of someone who did this was Paul. Someone who was stoned, beaten, run out of town, hunted, hated, eventually brutally, brutally killed. And yet we see him say things like he does to the church of Philippi in Philippians 3, 7 and 8 when he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, underline this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul has the audacity later in Philippians 4.4 4, to tell these people who are under persecution and suffering, rejoice, rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. He hits him with it two times. He counts everything as loss simply for the worth of knowing. Not seeing, not touching and feeling, knowing. Just knowing Christ is worth it to Paul. This is what enabled him to have real and tangible, resisting joy in light of his circumstances and culture. It was that his joy was contingent on the fulfilled and future promises of God and not his present circumstances of life. Christ has to be pretty good. If Paul is saying, I count everything as lost simply to know him, the surpassing, it is an ever growing and sustaining and surpassing worth that our souls feel. 
It's not just one fleeting moment like so many things in this world gives. It is a surpassing, it is a continual worth to know Christ Jesus. This isn't just some cute language of Paul to try to get a point across. He's actually saying, I don't care about anything. I just want to know Jesus. Do you know Christ like this? Do you find him as worth like Paul does? I think maybe we are such a negative and cynical, sometimes a lot of times lacking joy in the midst of our circumstances because we just don't think it's worth that much to know Christ Jesus. Yeah, he's worth a lot at the beginning, but now I wanna go and live my life. Yeah, but there are so many other things that I wanna do. Yeah, there's so many things I want to experience. Paul's saying, this is the experience of all experiences. Every experience that you would do that would bring you beauty or a sense of fulfillment or a sense of purpose or give you a sense of vision for your life can all be found and more in this person, Jesus. Is he worth that much to you? Do you count everything at loss? Maybe we, we aren't finding joy right now in our circumstances because we believe a lot about God, but we don't have a lot of experiences of the presence of God in our life to uphold and withhold those beliefs. Maybe we can't joy because we're more afraid of death than we are comforted by his unconditional love. Maybe it's simply that we just don't trust God completely. When he says things like, I'm enough, when he sings like, I have overcome the world, when he says things like I am making all things new. Maybe it's just that we do not trust him. The solution to our inability to rejoice in all things is frustratingly simple, I would say, because the solution is simply to know Christ and to know his worth. We know Christ by meditating on him and his word day and night. We, we chew on it. We sift through it daily, hourly if we can. We memorize it so that it can be ingrained in the very roots of our being. We, we, try, to, we try to be nourished by his word. We, we become dependent on him and his word for guidance and wisdom and ways of living. We, we realize that we have nothing without him and yet we are everything because of him. We actually make him the cornerstone of our life. We actually make him the most important thing of our life. We know Christ to the point where we trust him because we know his heart. We know his holiness. We know his goodness. We know his power. We know his, we know his love and grace for us that is unconditional and not withholding. We know all of these things. And so we trust him because the only way that we are going to have joy in the here and now while we're waiting for his second coming, the only way that we're gonna have joy when everything seems to be falling apart or that we're living in a constant state of exhaustion and busyness is if we know that in him and through him is the light of the world, the hope of all nations and the grace of God who can save and satisfy our souls. Isaiah 9 is the promise of all scripture. And this is an important promise for us to wrestle with of whether or not we actually believe it enough to live differently or if we just believe in the cute story of Jesus because the promises that you and I ultimately trust determine the joy that we experience. The promises in scripture or the promises of the world, work hard and you'll have a good life or have this thing and then you'll finally be happy. Whatever promises we trust and we give weight to 
determine whether or not we have darkness or dawn. And those who speak one word have no dawn, and the other who speaks and lives according to God's word has the light of all lights. This is such a difficult lesson. I want to say, I am learning how to joy. I am failing every single day. I forget the worth of Christ, and yet I know deep in me that my soul has found its worth in him. So as the song says, I am going to fall on my knees whether I want to or not, and I am going to listen to the angels' voices. I'm going to remind myself of what they are saying. I am going to sit in the words that they are proclaiming over me. I am going to sit under the truths that they are singing, which is rejoice for the king has come. Rejoice and rest for the work is finished. And the hardest one, surrender to his love and to his grace and find a surpassing worth of satisfaction in the person of Jesus. We rejoice when we recognize that the King of Kings has come. Lord of Lords, hope of all nations, light of lights, he has come. And the work is finished. And he is not withholding anything from you. All he's asking you to do is jump. To trust him enough. To trust the promises of God enough. To live as if they were actually true. Just for a moment, would you take a posture of prayer because I feel very led to just pray a prayer of rebuke. One of the things that Satan and death hates most is when we mock them by living in the promises of God. When we live like death has no power over us anymore because of the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I just rebuke any doubt of your power, any doubt of your love, any doubt of your wisdom and your ways. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke any lies of Satan that he's been spewing since Genesis 3, that you are not enough, that you are, uh, you are not ultimately good, that you, you do not ultimately have what's best in mind for us. You do not know what's best for us, that we know better, that, that you're withholding something from us, that you're manipulating us. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke these lies that are being spewed by Satan by this fallen world and we just proclaim that you are good. You are loving. You are a river of grace and mercy that is ever flowing and all we have to do is float. We have to surrender. That's it. So Father, would you remind someone who needs encouragement this morning of what you have done and what you have promised so that they would have joy. Would you appear to someone this morning who has yet to see you, who's yet to really realize all that you are and all that you hold so that they would find real resisting joy? And would we be a people who do not get caught up in the negativity and cynicism and hopelessness of the world, but we resist that with joy? We resist that joy because you have come. You are our King. You are our savior and you are what is surpassingly full of worth for our soul. Father, we give you all things. We speak all these things. We proclaim all these things in your mighty name and all God's people said, amen.
Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.